Welcome to the Premium Finance Show. Interviews and insights from industry professionals, helping you use financed insurance to provide tax-free withdrawals and extended estate protection. The Premium Finance Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, John McDonough. On today's show, we have Trey Kelly, interest rate expert, founder of Bascom Advisors. We talk about the subject that many clients bring up, which is what happens in an Armageddon scenario if interest rates rise and the stock market crashes. Trey talks about this, the unlikely, nearly impossible scenario of this happening, plus many other tools that are available to control interest rate risk and his attractiveness to the Cool Springs structure. This is a great call. Look forward to you listening. I am. Trey, welcome to the Premium Finance Show. I am very happy to have you on. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, John. I'm excited to be here. I can't tell you how excited I am for this conversation between you and I. This is going to be so practical and useful for our listeners. But let me walk through your bio so the listeners know who we're honored and blessed to have on the podcast today. And then we can just get into a conversation about something that's very relevant to the Cool Springs design and what we talk about with clients, advisors, um, CPAs, attorneys all the time. So Robert Trey Kelly is the founder of Bascom Advisors. Trey is an innovative and entrepreneurial interest rate expert with a passion for client service, quantitative analysis, and transaction execution. He's built a reputation in the industry for being a skilled negotiator with keen abilities at problem solving, risk management, financial model, derivative structuring, and project management. Trey founded Bascom Advisors to leverage almost two decades of industry experience and expertise. He's dedicated to equipping commercial real estate investors and Cool Springs with unique insights that best set them up for success based on their business goals today and tomorrow. Also, Trey, you are the, the Pensford Financial Group Director for many years and managed what was it close to, how big was the portfolio you managed there? So while there, we I was personally involved in, in several billion in transaction volume. So was it? Yes, that sounds about right. It's probably a little north of that, but yep, you get that. That's idea. awesome. Also, for our listeners, you, I I was shocked to hear this. Trey is also a graduate of UNC Charlotte Belt College of Business, and I'm honored because you're so much smarter than me. For me to have graduated from the same college as you, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, you just haven't I'll, heard me talk long enough, John. It, it'll all come full circle. I'm, I'm just riding on your coattails. Yes, I graduated from the same university that Trey did, and you, and you're also you're also philanthropically involved with the Children and Family Services Centers. You're on the board there. But you know, before we get into the business side of things, Trey, what are your passions, hobbies? What do you like to do so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better? Absolutely. And thank you again for having me, John. This is such a cool experience. And hopefully we, we can put some info out there that is relevant and helpful to the audience. Yeah, you bet. Uh, but the long and short is my passions are fly fishing and the outdoors. And really summarized that way, I, I took a 
two-year kind of hiatus after college and was a fly fishing guide for work. Unfortunately, I knew I had to come back and use my degree at some point, but that is still at the heart of my passions and desires. It all kind of articulates around fishing and hiking in and finding those spots and hunting those 20 plus inch um, trout that no one has access to, right? And and that's kind of the fun enjoyment part and, and combining that with, I've spent a lot of time working, but I enjoy what I do. So, Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Can you go on? No, it's just a good work-life balance is, is I think what we're all trying to achieve, but between fishing and music and family and work, it, it makes a full schedule real quick. Do you remember the movie, A River Runs Through It? Absolutely. <laughs> so that's mm. the thing. That's the thing. That's the movie that for me made fly fishing seem really cool. And I've always wanted to try it. I've tried it one time and I got so frustrated with it because it just couldn't get the rhythm right. But it well, is I'll one of those you, things that I will do. And you may appreciate this. When I was guiding, the first thing I would often say to clients is, so who's seen a river run through it? And almost all hands would go up and I'd say, okay, so there's no Brad Pitt today. We are not <laughs> shadow casting. That just spooks fish by twirling your line in the air. Great movie. <laughs> totally got me into it as well. But just let's take that out of the mindset. And this is what we're doing. Because <laughs> that's where everyone goes. So if I that's spin so it around this river, will the fish start to come up? I'm like, no, they're seeing your fly line, not a huge hatch of bud. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, Hollywood can make anything look sensationalized for sure. Even fly fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Well, Okay, so you are an interest rate expert, and I know this to be true because I've had a couple conversations with you that I get enthralled in those conversations. But how did you get into this business? How did you get into this line? Well, I can definitely say I did not grow up wanting to be a commodity advisor or interest rate expert. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> My mom couldn't find that costume at the Halloween store for some reason. <laughs> So it was a little bit more organic process. You know, my father was an accountant actually with PW at the time. And so I credit him with giving me kind of the numbers gene, if you will. He also worked with a number of commercial real estate developers. And so I'd hear, you know, so many crazy stories of boom or bust and getting to see some of these developments happen kind of early on, which is areas growing up that were once farmlands and, and the developer saying, no, trust me, they're building, you know, a, a highway right here. We're going to have 15 million square feet of office. And you're just like, there's a cow right there. I'm not so <laughs> sure this is a good business model. And fast forward 10 years later, and it is thriving, right? And so there was a certain allure to kind of that world. And actually, one of, one of my favorite stories he would often tell me was back in the 80s. So kind of put the mindset that this is your typical 80s executive office. And he was going to meet with a client. So he did the accounting for that was a big developer. And this was one evening they were discussing a project that hadn't gone as well as the developer had hoped. And the office, you know, obviously full of rich mahogany and a full bar and way too oversized. The two settled in over a cocktail. And after a few minutes, the developer turned to my dad and, and relatively introspectively said, 
You know what the problem with developers is? Commercial real estate cycles are generally six to eight years, but we only have a five-year memory. Hmm. And I, I think that is not only just very funny, but very intuitive. That's, yeah, very that's the way we all approach oftentimes. We kind of get stuck that the model we're using won't break because it's worked for years. And so having kind of a more proactive approach to these things also intrigued me. So started off in, in the real estate world and worked for years with tires and some of the larger commercial real estate firms, international firms. Before, you know, I, I always knew I wanted to get more into the capitalization of the assets and that capital stack. So as you mentioned, went back to school, went to UNC uh, Charlotte got my MBA. As I got out, I was talking with debt and equity shops and former client and friends said, hey, we're using this group to handle all of our interest rate risk management. I was like, really? Is that big a component to your That's business? a thing? That's a thing that people are actually making money doing? And he's like, I just know your personality and what you like and kind of the number side mixed with the relationship side and kind of the underlying economics. So why don't you go talk to them? And next thing you know, fast forward many years later, and I had been with them and decided it was time to kind of start my own shop. So I left there and started Bascom, essentially doing the same thing, assisting borrowers with a very kind of opaque world, right? There's not a lot of visibility into how these underlying derivative transactions are traded that essentially at the end of the day, either provide them with insurance on their floating rate risk or synthetically fix that rate for them. And there's just so much smoke and mirrors kind of behind the scenes with that. There's a good place for somebody to be wholly representing the borrower's interest in that market and making sure that things are getting executed and done as effectively efficiently as possible and in line with their bigger goals and strategies for the financing. Because you know the, the banks are not on in the business of making sure that the client is always most successful. You're dealing with different departments within a bank once you're dealing with the derivative side. Everyone has their own PLs and we just want to make sure everyone's, you know, cards are on the table. No, that's great. And you already brought up a couple of things that I'm going to dive into on this call. But again, setting the stage for the listeners, describe you know what your typical client makeup would look like, the type of organization that you assist at Bascom. So at the highest level, it, it, it's any company that one has floating rate borrowing floating rate debt on their books. And generally, commercial loans prefer to go that route unless it's with kind of a smaller regional bank. You know, the reason's pretty clear for a bank, a floating rate loan, let's just say it's on LIBOR as the index. LIBOR is meant to represent their borrowing costs. They don't, they want to be indifferent to where rates go. They want to make the spread. So based on the risk profile of the borrower and the deal, they say, hey, John, your rate is LIBOR plus 250. That way we are really indifferent to where rates move as long as we get our 250. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of borrowers are not are a little bit more risk adverse than that. And, and so while, and I know we have discussed this, John, over a long enough hold period, it is always cheaper to float than fit. There are going to be periods of stress and pain during that, you know, 10-year hold that may put your project upside down. And so there are instruments we can put in place and kind of be proactive. So a little bit more sophisticated or comprehensive approach to your hedging strategy. Have something in place so that we can make sure that at the end of the day, your returns are maximized. So you represent the client that's borrowing the money. You don't represent the bank. Okay. You actually work with the client on the, you work with the client to make sure the bank transaction is more favorable for them. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I also work with the client trying to ensure that whatever structure we are putting on, because there's a number of different instruments we can use based on what their goals are. But if they come to me and say, you know, hey, this is really five-year money, but we may be out in three years because we're going to recapitalize or we may sell this fund. Well, what I'm hearing is there's a chance it's a three-year, not a five-year loan. What the bank will say is, hey, you're not in the interest rate risk business. You are a investor in X, Y, and Z. Let's just go ahead and put this to bed, put a fixed rate on it for the full term, and you can focus on your underlying business. While that makes sense on the surface, that's not always what would work best for that specific project. No, that's better for the bank, not for the client. That's just it. And I mean, you have to understand, especially if it hasn't been made clear through Dodd-Frank and know your customer, there's a reason why the banks have to hand you a disclosure that says, FYI, the bank does not represent you. Any trades or derivatives you enter, you understand the risks associated with such. If not, you'll go out and hire an advisor to make sure that you do. So it's in black and white that, hey, I'm not throwing stones at, at you know, all of the bank derivative or trading desk, because a lot of them operate on the up and up and are very good and very helpful and very informative. But you always want to go into any negotiation with all of the information. Like I never want to be blindsided by not knowing if this, what this guy is telling me is accurate or not. And the fact that his P&L is based on him juicing up that number higher Again, I'm going to want some other verification and, and somebody walking me through, you know, to my earlier example, if it sounds like you may only hold this for three years, let's look at a shorter term hedge. Hey, you prefer to float. Let's negotiate with the bank a springing cap where you don't have to put anything in place until LIBOR hits a certain threshold. Ways like that, we can still address their risk mitigation issues as the bank. And if that's what they really are trying to do, not a revenue event by making you enter this trade that they are very profitable with, you know, on the front end, if it's truly a risk mitigation event and and we know both parties motivations, how can we structure this so it's more efficient from a cost perspective, but still gets the protection that the borrower ultimately needs. And you've already kind of hit on that a couple of times. Yeah. And you've already kind of hit on that a couple of times. So let's just dig into that right now. So can you give us an example of a typical transaction that you would do? So a client's got a floating rate against the LIBOR index. What do you do? 
So it, typically there's two buckets that it falls into. One is what's a required cap. So there's a lot of lenders that will look at their underwriting and say, hey, we're happy to give you, we would prefer to give you a floating rate. Let's just say it's LIBOR plus 200. But if LIBOR goes above 4%, so your all-in rate is 6% at that point, we want some assurance that you're going to be able to pay this. Because right now, based on the income stream from that asset that we are loaning on, that's collateralizing this loan, your debt service is going to far exceed it. And we want to make sure that you can always pay us back. Well, from the borrower side, he says, well, based off the forward curve, so market expectations, where these future contracts on this index are trading, the market doesn't think the underlying index is going to be above 50 basis points over the next five years. If I go out and buy a five-year cap right now that you're requiring, it's going to cost me half a million bucks and in all likelihood provide zero economic value to me. Exactly. And it's not even like it's close to the forward curve. It's not 65 basis points where it's, oh, the market only has to be wrong 15 basis points and this thing's in the money. It's so far out of the money that we are just paying for that uncertainty component, right? So if I'm a trader and, and I'm selling you a option, I may be pretty confident where rates are going to go plus or minus 25 bips over the next year. When you ask me what five years out looks like, my crystal ball gets very hazy. Well, that's good. I don't my know crystal ball has been with. broken ever since I've gotten into this business. So the, the fact <laughs> that yours goes out almost five years is amazing. Oh, it doesn't. <laughs> it's so foggy, you can't even read anything. But I think that's the point. Like, it, it, That's why forward curves are, are never 100% accurate. It's just the best information we have. And because so that's what the market's treat. telling you. The forward curve, and for those of you that don't know, Trey created a document that is a forward curve over the next X number of years of where a typical index, whether it's the 30-day LIBOR, the six-month LIBOR, the 12-month LIBOR, kind of where that is going within, I think, Trey, one standard deviation or something like that. And Exactly. And it, it tells us where those options contracts are, are heading into the future. Is that right? Right. That and, and actual futures contracts. So fixed agreements on that, but they are standardized and traded. So that's why that forward curve's moving constantly, but it's at least where we see where the bigger money, the institutional money is making bets. But and back to this client that's got that, you know, where the bank is wanting them to do that cap and that cap, you know, mm -hmm. would be excessively expensive. How do you then step and, and so, for the client? So then, one, we want to talk with the bank and understand what their real motivation is. And so as long as it's not, if it's purely a revenue event, like, hey, we actually aren't worried about LIBOR going to 3 or 5%, but we're going to make a bunch of money on this trade, and that's part of the deal. Like, okay, let's put that on the table and tell that to the client. So, hey, client, the bank is going to make an extra 450000 after trade costs on this hedge. They're saying that's part of the deal economics. It just gives the borrower then leverage, 
right? Mm-hmm. Is that's not what they really want. The other side of it, and, and what's more often the case is, hey, the borrower or the um, lender is saying, we just want some risk mitigation to make sure that we can get paid back. So if rates spike and their debt service shoots up, there's not enough income coming off this property. And so we're looking out and saying, hey, again, we're getting charged a bunch of money for years three, four, and five, kind of the insurance of that cap protection. What about if we put in a, a two-year swap to begin with? We agree as a, a condition of the loan agreement and event of default that if at any time we do not have a hedge or cap in place, it is an event of default, so you're a protected lender. Would you allow us to do a shorter term with rolling caps? Because right there, it takes our costs, you know, and I'm making up numbers, but from 500000 to the first two years actually only cost 40000 We can then roll these caps onto one-year extensions, and our all-in cost is 100000 Well, that saved us 400000 That's real money. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of take a more dynamic approach to watching where the curve is moving and putting edges in place when needed versus buying stuff so far out of the money. You're just charging us like a lottery ticket, right? So how much of this done, how much of this is done at loan origination and how much of this is done at, you know, renewal or even after it's been placed the the loan is in force where you're reviewing the loan document mid midstream, like mid cycle. How, how, where does this fall in, in, in the windows of all that? So the ones that are really done once the loans are in place are with the lender that was okay with some floating rate exposure with that borrower. So they did not have a required hedge that had to be put in place when they closed the loan. So there are you know, very large, sophisticated investors and borrowers that are looking at their portfolio level and they want to keep a, you know, I'm throwing this out there, but 50-50 fixed to float ratio. They want some exposure to fixed rates. They know generally over time they pay a little more for them. They have prepayment penalties associated, et cetera, but they want some exposure to floating as well. And as they bring new loans into the portfolio, we can either move assets in and out of a given trade in and out of a given hedge. They can internally allocate that hedge how they want. But the idea being now, instead of looking at a deal by deal basis, let's look at something at a portfolio or fund level where here's what we're trying to protect. And maybe the fund is 400 million, but we really just want to buy some protection on 200 million of it. That's on a revolver that is floating. And, And so taking a proactive approach when you don't have to do hedging versus, hey, the lender's requiring it. I want to make sure that it matches our strategy, not what makes the bank money. And my question was loaded, obviously, because the people that listen to this podcast have either been exposed to Cool Springs or being exposed to Cool Springs or existing clients of Cool Springs or are in fact those advisors, those trusted advisors vetting the design for their clients because of Cool Springs. So I I wanted to get that on the table. And now I really kind of want to get into a couple nuanced questions about our design and how things work. But in general, Trey, 
what would you say? Not the sophisticated investor, but you know, your in your world, it would be your developer who you know has a lot of money, but you know is not the most sophisticated interest rate person in the world. And in my world, it's the successful business owner, ultra high net worth individual, or their trusted advisors that just don't really understand how interest rates work. What are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about interest rates? Man, so <laughs> where to start? One, that the, the market has an accurate forecast of future rates. Uh, to a certain extent, you, you just need to remember that we are dealing with the best information that we have in front of us. So the best programs and strategies are almost always more dynamic, right? We don't have to put all of this exposure, this financing, this debt to bed or hedge 100% day one for the full term, because that may not make sense. We need to look at the, the bigger picture. Where are we in the economic cycle? Because things are always cyclical. And where does the forward curve point to knowing that, well, before a tightening cycle, they generally underestimate the pace of hikes. So to be a little bit opportunistic, at the same time, we're not in the speculation game, right? We want to ensure like any arbitrage opportunities. Like I have a client that comes in and sends me his pro forma and he's like, hey, the ace rent on this office building in Manhattan is spitting off X and this is the credit of the tenants. I'm not worried about that going away. What I'm worried about, you know, that equals a a 10% basically return on on equity there. I want to leverage that, but I don't want my debt cost to go above my cash flows coming off the, the property, right? My rental receipts. And so it's that same kind of arbitrage mentality. It's like, as long as I can keep my debt costs here, I know that, you know, 95% of the time outside of my big anchor tenant met life walking out the door and going bankrupt and, you know, these kind of black swan events, I'm going to have this beautiful 8% plus arbitrage every single month. And I think those are the type of you know misconceptions people have with interest rates is what whatever the market projects is going to happen. And by the way, it, it almost never does that the swap rates they read online are the same as what the banks would be quoting them. All of these instruments are highly customized. So you're not going to pull any rate for the most part offline that's going to be really reflective of where the bank is clearing any of these trades with. And then I guess one one size fits all as far as a hedging strategy. You really have to get to know the underlying asset and, and the strategy behind it and timing to really articulate and, and put together a comprehensive strategy that's going to provide that flexibility you need, but at the end, be very efficient with your money in, in hedging those risks because they're real risks. Right. And, and what would you say, Trey, about, you know, I get this question a lot. And I know people listening, even if they haven't asked us the question at Cool Springs, they've thought about the question. What's the likelihood that interest rates would rise to double digit rates from where they are right now and stay there in the stock market, the S&P 500, the equity markets 
would crash and just be negative, negative for 10 years. I call it the Armageddon scenario. But what's the likelihood that this Armageddon scenario would ever play out? So uh, I, I almost feel like by the definition, the Armageddon scenario is very unlikely. <laughs> I, I would even argue in environments that we have seen that stiff, you know, almost hyperinflation, i.e. the 80s, and it kind of forced at the time the Fed to raise rates very high, we still saw economic growth. I'm looking at a chart of the S&P from 1980 right now. And while it was not shooting up like it has been since, you know, say 2008, the economy was not shrinking for the most part. Like we continued a decent trajectory. And I think the bigger picture, especially in the environment we are in now, is you know, we have a, a political environment that uses, you know, the S&P and NASDAQ and Dow as a barometer for how the economy is doing. And, and they have made it clear since a financial crisis to the recent COVID that not only are they willing to keep rates at near zero for extended periods of time, they will come up with new unprecedented monetary tools to keep the economy moving forward. So we saw that in the great financial crisis with you know, the Fed starting to buy mortgage-backed securities and et cetera. And in the most recent, you know, trillions of dollars of stimulus that have just pumped in. Um, and that's just unprecedented. And you know, I, I hear a lot of the argument about, yes, well, you can't just keep making credits you know, inflation has to be there at some point. And, and I, I think we certainly have seen some indicators that, that, you know, a lot of consumer products are increasing in pricing. How much of that is really due to transitory factors like the Fed likes to push right now? And actually, President Biden doubled down on, I believe yesterday, was he agreed with the Fed that a lot of these things are transitory. There's supply chain bottlenecks. There's people finally getting back out of the house and the economy opening up. So demand spikes combined with a lack of production can drive inflation very high. But that should be transitory. And we're also coming out of a deflationary period. So kind of in his mind, it's getting back to zero. While I still think there's some concerns that you know you can only keep making credits or printing money for so long before, uh, you know, there is some effect to it. We are still the world's piggy bank. And so when you have a German bond trading at negative 30 bips, you can hedge your foreign exchange costs for, you know, 100 bips. Suddenly, uh, a 130 American treasury, you know, basically risks the sovereign debt looks very attractive. So as the Fed continues to bow out of, of these, you know, purchases and they'll start to taper probably, you know, towards the end of this year, we'll know more after Jackson Hole. I still think there's a strong enough demand globally to help fund us. Again, kind of the bigger picture being whenever we see a blip in, in equity side, we see a very dovish which all that Fed, which just means they're ready to break out any tool in, in their box to make sure that the gas pedal stays on, that at least we continue forward, not down. Yeah, sorry. If, if, so, so if I tried to oversimplify it for the listeners, so the indices, the equity markets, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Dow, 
are barometers of the economy. That's what the powers that be have chosen as their bellwether. Is that right? And so then if the economy is down, thus those equity markets are down, although it's not in perfect concert with one another, the Fed is then going to take measures and and deploy tactics to stimulate the economy if the economy is going down. Is that right? Absolutely. And traditionally, to stimulate the economy, they've eased money, which means they've lowered rates, amongst other things, but they've lowered rates. Is that right? You're 100% right. Okay. So I'm trying to spell this out for the listeners so that they can understand the correlation. So. So then when the economy is good, thus the equity markets are performing and getting that alpha, that those positive returns, that's when, because that's the bellwether, that's the trophy, that's when the Fed is going to say, okay, now might be the time to, to tighten money back up a little bit, although they haven't done it, which would be to start to raise rates. Is that right? Exactly. Okay, yes. so, 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 so the scenario, one, one, one more point. So, so then the scenario yep. that we get asked, the Armageddon scenario, what happens if the stock market crashes and interest rates rise, not only for 10 years, but for five years, for three years, for two years, for even one year, that's the exact opposite of what we're seeing being deployed over recent years. Is that, would you agree with my statement there? Absolutely. Okay. And, and to continue to keep with a nice simplified ideology is, you know, the Fed's mandate is full employment and stable prices. When the economy is going well, employment is, is really not the issue. Once we hit a, a, any sort of recession or downturn, that's when we see unemployment spike, et cetera. The, the Fed is, then wants to make borrowing easier to help try to stimulate the economy to come back. So to your because, point, yeah, yeah. the economy goes down. The Fed wants to be proactive and says, okay, we're cutting rates, which you will then see affect all borrowing costs drop lower. On the opposite side, and kind of what we saw after the financial crisis um, for kind of a more uh, recent example is the economy was doing well after all the stimulus they tapered their bond purchases and at that point they were really hiking rates not because they wanted to necessarily cool the economy but they just wanted room so that when we hit the inevitable next cycle turn the next recession we have tools in our toolbox to cut you down to zero so suddenly to increase liquidity to help push the economy back forward. So their whole mentality is this, we're going to raise rates when we can, when the economy is doing well, but we want rates higher so that we can combat a recession or a downturn. So it's is, exactly it, what you were saying. Yeah. You know? So is there a relationship for the listeners as well? Is inflation and interest rate rising. Is that the same thing? How would you describe that to our listeners? So uh, the Federal Reserve, the Fed really controls the front end of the curve. So the front end, if you think about, you know, two years in, 
the market is looking at the Fed projections, the FOMC dot plot, et cetera, which is just a, a graph that they send out after it's about every other meeting, so about four times a year, that they send out that just shows kind of the median consensus of where the Fed members believe rates, really Fed funds, which is what they control, is going to go in the next couple of years. And so the front end is, is so driven by Fed funds because they can really control that. And that's what the banks on short-term financing, you know, are having to go back to the Fed each night and, and post monies and et cetera. So that really represents the front end, what is going to cost and who's driving it being the Fed. The back end of the curve is really supposed to represent. So if you think of a 10 year, it's really supposed to represent growth and inflation expectations. Now, that has gotten very out of whack with this current incredibly low yield environment we are in with kind of massive stimulus. So you have massive amounts of both foreign capital and uh, national capital plowing into very low treasuries, just driving them lower uh, on the back end. So that's why we have a 10 year, you know, call it 130. Right now, obviously, that doesn't represent inflation and growth projections over the next 10 years. But if you open up your old textbooks, conceptually, that is what the back end is supposed to represent. The front end is really more controlled by the Fed and their policy. Got it. Understood. So when it comes to the Cool Springs design, obviously, we have a different philosophy than most any other in the premium finance space. And we use high cash value policies as much as possible as we can get them because it, it helps the collateral requirement with the client be lower. But what is it from what you've seen, Trey, about the Cool Springs design that really um, resonates with you and gives you, you know, like you said, you, you kind of get excited about it when you look. So yeah, I'll preface this with, I, I'm not a paid spokesman for Cool Springs. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is just what I know from really digging into your models and the education you guys have really given me on, on this side of the business. And, and I think there's a, a couple strategic advantages that, that you all have. You know, what we were just touching on is the longer, you know, we can look at the negative correlation between equities and bonds. Generally, bond pricing goes up. So those are considered riskless assets. Bond pricing goes up. That means yields go down or borrowing costs goes down as the economy is shrinking. So people are moving. If you want to think equities are risk products, debt, bonds, treasuries are riskless. So when the economy is doing great, people are pouring money into equities. So then you see bond pricing move up, yields move up. So there's a nice negative correlation there. And then when things aren't going well, people are pouring money into safe haven assets, treasuries, far riskless compared to the equity side. So as we've discussed that kind of correlation, right there, your arbitrage, where you are, especially in this environment, funding these things or borrowing at a very low interest rate and depending on a, you know, index return, which, you know, e even throughout this recent time period is, you know, double digits type return for you. It's kind of a beautiful arbitrage 
situation right there. I think what only kind of exponentially increases the one, the attractiveness, but more importantly, the returns is the specific products that you all can offer. So having a index or an investment vehicle that has a floor at zero percent, you know, we'll say the S&P, right there, just knowing that I'm, I'm not making less than zero, that throws off all the equations on this whole risk return metrics. <laughs> my sharp ratio or my units of risk per return just got a lot better once I have that floor. So I'm not losing any money. And, and while that may be offset with a ceiling or a hurdle at a certain point, it, it's really protecting that window of return and that all being positive. And, and I think that drives you know, tremendous value to the, the holder um, on, on that case, because it's just not it's a very unique product that you do not available to most borrowers or investors in the market. And, and that's why I was so excited to have you on the podcast today, because you see things through your expertise lens, which is interest rates and interest rate sensitivity and in the interest rate environment. And you are the expert, you knowing what you know about where interest rates are, how they act, the caps, the swaps, the metrics, the tools that are available to control the upward pressure of interest rates in conjunction with what we provide in our product design is really the beauty of the Cool Springs strategy. And it, I can say it till I'm blue in the face, but to a certain extent, I'm even though I'm a specialist and a product specialist, I'm viewed as a salesperson because, right, I, I have to be in their mind. Mm. But you, Trey, are not. You're, I mean, in fact, you sit on the side of the table with the client, right? As you said, you help them with the bank lending to make sure the banks aren't taking advantage of them. So to hear you say that, and he's right, he's not a paid spokesperson, trust me, is very fresh and rejuvenating for me to hear because... I, you know, I know what I know to be true and I have the data to back it up. But even sometimes it's to get those same questions over and over, it starts to, to wear, right? It starts to, to kind of chip away. It's just like, how do we get the education? That Armageddon scenario is not real. It's not going to happen. Yeah, but what if? Well, we could walk outside and get hit by a meteor, but you don't not go outside. And you said a comment to me earlier, seeking return would you say return is risk or risk is yeah, return. return is risk. And, and so if I, I can find a opportunity where my downside risk is some black swan event that has never happened in, in our history versus buying a equity portfolio that certainly has gone up and has sank to negative returns in the past 20 years, that's almost a no brainer, right? I mean, it, to me, the, the question then becomes almost like, well, this is too good to be true. Let me dig in more. But I, I think, you know, from going through your model and, and the specific products that you all can offer and just combined with you all being proactive about, okay, here are ways we can manage this debt exposure so that if we do get into a short-term period where the Fed's hiking rates and the market pukes over it and valuations change, while that's going to be short-lived, we want to make sure that we are still driving value to our clients. And so to have a hedge policy and things in place is just being proactive. And it is just going to help 
that kind of solidify that arbitrage availability or opportunity. Well, and, and you bring up a good point is then we, then people do say, well, it sounds too good to be true. And my response to that is no, it's not too good to be true. It's too good to be free. It is financed every step of the way. The financing is what is the engine to making this grow. And yes, you have to have the, you have to have the right product to receive the financing so that you get the arbitrage and then it zeroes back to interest rate risk. And that's why this conversation is so timely and so useful. So many of our listeners, I know many of our clients are business owners, both purchasing real estate, they have capital projects. Um, Trey, how would they reach out to you? How would they have a conversation with you? And how can you determine if it'd be a good fit for you to work with them? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, we we are in the relationship business. So if any, particularly a client of yours, John, ever wants to just talk rates or talk about what's going on in the economy or what we think the outlook is like, pick up, shoot us an email, whatever works. We'd love to get on the call. And that's never wasted time for us. That's the fun part of the job. Um, our, our website is Bascom, B-A-S-C-O-M, advisors.com. Our main line is 980-208-1600. And my email address is T Kelly. So Trey Kelly, just T-K-E-L-Y at BascomAdvisors.com. So thank you. And I'll put that one to reach out. Happy yeah. to discuss. I'll put that on the podcast link so that they can link right to it. When you go and fly fishing again, man, I actually went in Colorado on Saturday. I'll have to send you some pics. It was a phenomenal day. Where in Colorado were you? So we were outside of Denver and the right below a reservoir. I'm going to butcher the name, so I won't say it, but a nice, simple, like, Three mile hike in, three mile hike out into this canyon. Didn't see anyone all day. Beautiful wild mm. trout. I mean, that's, 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 I couldn't draw it up any better than that. Yeah, it reminds me of a river run through it. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of shadow casting, lots of Brad Pitt interpretation. <laughs> Trey, thank you for your time today. I appreciate the work thank you, you do John. helping our clients, and we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you, John. There we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at premiumfinanceshow.com. And you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at coolspringsfinancial.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.